Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, as we open your word, we want to see you. And we want to hear your voice. Please do this for us. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Um, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. The story that Mark tells reminds me of a story that I heard uh, that a missionary told when I was a child. He told about how villagers where he lived uh, caught monkeys. He said they'd take a coconut and make a tiny hole in the coconut, a small hole, and then put rice inside. The hole was just large enough that a monkey could stick his hand into the hole, but once he had grasped the rice with his fist and made a fist, he couldn't pull his hand out again, which made it easy for the villagers to catch him. Now, now it's hard for me to believe that a a wild monkey would be foolish enough to give up his freedom for, for food that he couldn't actually access. But sadly, apparently that's true. And unfortunately, we humans can be that foolish as well. Too often, we refuse to let go of things of lesser importance, preventing ourselves from getting the things, from reaching the things, from obtaining, enjoying the things that God wants for us, his abundant, eternal life. And we get trapped in second best by our own unwillingness to let go of lesser things. I know this because sometimes I see it in myself. And I certainly see it in this true story that Mark tells about this fellow who was so excited about beating Jesus, but was unwilling to let go of his wealth in order to follow him. Now, the story is troubling because Jesus speaks about what we treasure in a way that I personally find threatening, and maybe you do too. We've been in Mark's gospel for a while, and we'll be in it a little while longer, so maybe this is a good time to remind ourselves of the skills that we need to mine the riches of the gospel genre. Uh, The Bible contains seven literary genres, and so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even Acts are written in what we call the gospel genre. And there are special skills involved in in making the most of understanding this genre. I really encourage you to have an open Bible before you as we work through this passage. Just, if we could do a brief aside here uh, to review these skills. Skill number one would be Detect repeated words, phrases, and ideas. Be looking for them when you read the Gospels. The Gospel writers are underscoring important ideas through this repetition. So in this passage, we'll see the word good a number of times. Eternal life actually brackets the section. It's in the first verse and, and, and at the very end. Wealth is here. And three times it says that Jesus looked. Jesus looked. So the first skill, detect repeated words and phrases and ideas. The second skill, pay attention to how individuals responded to Jesus and how he responded to them in return. And so in this passage, we have have three interactions, Jesus with the wealthy man, Jesus and his disciples, and then Jesus and Peter. And we'll want to watch closely to see how Jesus interacted with them. The third skill is notice Old Testament connections. And here in this passage, there are two, even three, very obvious Old Testament connections. One is, has to do with the commandments. A second has to do with the idea of wealth. And, uh, and then a third would be poverty, which we won't follow up on. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture as though it was a drama of three scenes. So scene number one is Jesus and the wealthy man, verses 17 to 22. 
And uh, uh, so I'll follow along as, as I read it. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the young man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So here's what we know about this man. Mark tells us that he was eager. He ran up to Jesus, verse 17, and that he's earnest. He fell on his knees before Jesus, also verse 17. And at the very end, in verse 22, we find out that he's rich. He had great wealth. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew and Luke also tell this story. In Matthew 19, we find out he's young. In Luke chapter 18, we find out he's a ruler. Perhaps he was a ruler in a synagogue, or maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So this is a prestigious, powerful, young adult. Uh, he's often called the rich, young ruler. And he has a burning question. What, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think that he thinks that he knows the answer, but he wants to be reassured. So here's where we notice a repetition of the word good. He thinks the way to eternal life is to do good. Good teacher, he says. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew actually quotes him as saying, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, the, uh, the subtle uh, detail variations in the way Matthew Mark and Luke recount the story is an important evidence in the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts as eyewitness accounts. When, when witnesses give accounts that are completely identical, it may show that they have colluded with each other to get their stories straight. That's why detectives investigating crime separate witnesses so they have to hear tell their stories separately. Here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give independent accounts of the same event that uh, aren't quite identical. At the same way, they don't, at the same time, they don't contradict each other. Rather, they complement each other and give a fuller story and assure us that we can trust what is being said here, which is important because what's being said is radical indeed. So Jesus challenges the young ruler's idea of goodness. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there are two implications implied here. One, if no one is good except for God, then no one can get eternal life by doing good. And a second implication, if Jesus is good, good teacher, what must I do? Then he is God. A thorough reading of the four Gospels indicate that that actually is true. The best explanation for Jesus' words and actions is that, in fact, he is God come to our rescue. So Jesus further explores goodness with this young man. 
And here we notice uh, a very important Old Testament connection. They start to discuss the commandments. In Luke 19, actually, we hear Jesus tell the man straight up, if you want eternal, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. Jesus says that. Is that true? I mean, don't you just have to pay a prayer asking Jesus to be your Savior, to forgive your sins, and to give you eternal life? Well, of course, what Jesus says is true, so we'd better listen very carefully to how Jesus works this out. Again, we hear Matthew, uh, we hear from Matthew, hear the young man say, which ones? And Jesus lists off six commandments. You know the commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. You shall honor your father and your mother. Now remember that Jesus is the one who chooses these particular commands. And it seems like he's probably up to something. Can you see the young man's face? What do you see? He's beaming, as he says. Teacher, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And he's thinking to himself, yes, I've got this. I've nailed it. This is what I was hoping to hear. Can you see Jesus' face as he hears the young man's response? What do you see? Not disgust, not disappointment, not scorn. Yeah, sure, tell me another one. Love. Jesus looked at him and loved him, records Mark. Jesus saw him in all of his self-righteousness and self-importance, and he loved him. Now, we recognize these six commands that Jesus states to the young man as part of the Ten Commandments. Uh, The Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. But Jesus didn't give all ten. He gives only six. He didn't state the first four because he was about to let the young man figure out for himself how well he is doing with them. The first four are these. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything to bow down and to worship. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day to keep them holy. So basically, two, three, and four are an expansion of number one. You shall have no other gods before me. When we look at the Ten Commandments carefully, we see that really there are two types. The first four are about loving God, about acknowledging God as God and God alone. The second six, the last six, are about loving our neighbor. Jesus doesn't question whether this young man is doing a good job of keeping the last six. But he puts the young man in a bind to show him that he's failing at the first four. To help the young man see this for himself, he says to him, one thing you lack. Now notice Jesus didn't tell him what he lacked. But he does ask him to do five things. He says, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Isn't this a little, little extreme? The one thing he lacks is not too much money. No, it is that he has another God before the true God. Can you see the young man's face now? 
he went away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't go, sell, give, come, follow Jesus who is God because he already had a God, his great wealth. He went away without having eternal life because he treasured the wrong things instead of the right person. So what about doing and being good? Isn't that important? Of course it's important. Jesus and the young man agree that living the Ten Commandments is important. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is of great importance. These days as we listen to the news and hear about people cheating to get the COVID vaccine before others, we see the ugliness of not loving our neighbors. Or this month, being Black History Month, we're reminded of the ugliness that has happened in Canada throughout our history and into the present day when we have not loved First Nations and Blacks and Chinese and others. Loving our neighbor is good and important, but Jesus is right. No one is good except God alone. We cannot be good enough to spend eternity in the presence of a flawlessly good God. None of us can. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's flawless goodness. Romans 3.23. The solution to the problem is the one that Jesus gave the young man. Follow me. Follow me. When we read on in Mark's gospel, and we don't have to read very far, we discover that Jesus died to pay the penalty that our sins deserve, and he came back to life to give us eternal life forever with him. In fact, it's in the very next paragraph after our text. Verse 32, Jesus for a third time predicts his death and resurrection, which his followers didn't understand until these things had actually happened. To follow him, we must recognize that he is God who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has made us right with the good God when we, when we acknowledge him as God and trust in him for our relationship with God. Any false gods, money, possessions, friends, popularity, achievements, even family, any false gods that we make more important than him, put into question whether we truly own him as our God. So the message of scene one is this. If you want to have eternal life, and who doesn't? If you want to have eternal life, you must give up all other gods and follow Jesus as your only God. Let's move on to scene two, which we find in verses 23 to 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This interaction is tremendously important because Jesus makes it clear 
that uh, what he just asked of the rich young ruler applies to us too. What Jesus says may make us squirm. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Can you see the disciples' face, faces? What do you see there? They're amazed. They're shocked. Jesus replied, children, this is the only place that Jesus ever called his disciples children. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Here he's not even specifying rich people. He just says it's hard, period, for anyone to enter the kingdom. This is applying for, to us too. And then he goes back to the issue of wealth, which also applies to us, and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. People like the rich young ruler and the disciples tend to think that prosperity is a sign of God's approval, and we might think that too. We could get that impression, as they did, from an unbalanced reading of the Old Testament. Take, for example, Psalm 112, which begins, Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. And then verse 3, wealth and riches are in their houses. Jesus challenges that misunderstanding. Children, he says. Why does he call them children? Well, if you look back in the text, you'll see that he's just been talking to children. He's just placed his hands on them and blessed them. And he's just said, verse, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Being like children includes being like children when it comes to money. Children have little concept of the value of money. As adults, we know how hard it is to get, and we know all the stuff that it can buy. So as adults, it's hard to let go of it. We, 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 we get our hands in the coconut, and our fist closes around that stuff, and we don't want to let it go. Money and stuff can, and the stuff it can buy, so easily become too important to us, even our God. To make his point, Jesus uses this famous hyperbole, a humus, humorous hyperbole. The rich will find coming under God's rule more difficult than trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. The eye of a, a needle is very small. A camel is the largest animal in Palestine, Israel. Now, you might have heard the explanation that there was a tiny gate in the wall of Jerusalem uh, called the needle's eye. And loaded camels had to get down on their knees and be unloaded to make it through that gate. Shakespeare references this idea in, in, uh, <clears throat> Richard, in his play, Richard III. Well, that idea is a lot older than Shakespeare. It first popped up about a thousand years ago. But you should know that it doesn't actually have historical basis. <clears throat> it might even be an attempt to try to look for a loophole here. This is straight up hyperbole. Jesus is saying something like, it's easier to drive a, a semi-trailer truck through a keyhole than it is to get a rich person into heaven. When we're ruled by money, we're not surrendering to the rule of God. If we aren't surrendering to the rule of God, we're not in his kingdom. 
this is jarring. We live in a materialistic culture and we are so easily materialistic ourselves. Most of us would gladly have more money and things than we have now. Whether you're working for a living or you're retired like I am, when asked the question, how much is enough? Our honest answer is usually a little bit more. We might put on a pedestal people who are voluntarily poor in order to serve God, but we might be reluctant to be one of those voluntary poor. There's a story about a church elder who prayed for his pastor. Lord, you, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Now that story is probably not true, but it's true that we would probably rather have the poor person be someone else rather than ourselves. So the disciples are all the more amazed. Who then can be saved they question. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with God this is impossible, but uh, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with him. Now just note for a moment the interchange of, of, of terms here. Receiving eternal life, entering the kingdom, and being saved all speak about the same thing. Together they speak about having a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever because we recognize Jesus for who he is. He's the king of the kingdom. He is God and we have surrendered our all to him as well as trusting him for acceptance with God. None of us can secure these things for ourselves with or without money. Only God can give us eternal life. Only God can bring us into his kingdom. Only God can rescue us from eternal separation with God. And so we surrender to Jesus as our rightful leader, the Lord of our lives, surrendering even to him our treasure, the things that we treasure. Everything is at his disposal. We recognize that he owns it all. We are entrusted with the weighty responsibility of managing our possessions for him, but they are his to some of us, he may ask us to give, leave, give much of it or all of it away. To all of us, he asks us to recognize his ownership of it and to use it for him. In his kingdom, we are managers, not owners. Now we all face two temptations. The first is to whittle away Jesus' radical demands to make them more reasonable. And the second is to apply them to somebody else, to the rich young ruler, or to the pastor, or to the missionary, or to whoever. Mark Twain said it's not the parts of the Bible that he couldn't understand that bothered him. He said it was the parts that he did understand. Now let's make it clear that Jesus was not advocating that all of his followers sell everything and give it away. Many of his followers did have possessions. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had a home where they hosted Jesus, and he loved going there. And when Lazarus said, look, Lord, Zacchaeus rather said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, Jesus didn't say to him, well, that's not good enough. You should be giving them all away. He said, rather, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But that doesn't change the radical nature of Jesus' demands on our lives. And so we could summarize the, the, sec the message of the second scene with this question. 
do your possessions anchor your soul in this world? Or are they resources you are using in God's kingdom? Let's take a quick look at the third scene, which we find in verses 28 to 31. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It seems to me that Peter's reminder to Jesus of the disciple's sacrifice mirrors the rich young man's question. The young man's question was aimed at reassuring himself that he was doing all the good stuff that he should be doing in order to have eternal life. And Peter's reminder begs for reassurance that his sacrifice for Jesus is good enough to pass Jesus' radical test. I have to tell you, I find Jesus' answer both reassuring and troubling. Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter and his companions indeed had left businesses and their families, at least for periods of time, for Jesus and for the good news that the kingdom of God had come near. And Jesus reassures them that following him, even when it meant leaving what they treasure, following him is worth it in this life and in the next. Even when you add the cost of persecution, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat. Even when you add the cost of, the cost of persecution, it's worth it. There's great reassurance here. But I've always been troubled by these words as well. Maybe you are too. You might be saying, well, if Jesus had invited me, as he did the rich young ruler, to sell everything and give it away and join his team, <laughs> I'm not sure I would have joined the team. And even now, this interaction with Peter makes, leaves me wondering if I'm actually willing to leave whatever Jesus wants me to leave. I have a particular reason for struggling with these words. When I was nine years old, my parents came to believe that God wanted them to sell everything, give it away, most of it, and leave their children in Canada, including their youngest, in order to serve him in Asia. Except for two brief periods of several months, that was it for me in living with my parents for my childhood and youth. I was well cared for, but not by my parents. I'm absolutely sure that it is only God's enabling grace that enabled me not to feel abandoned by my parents. I didn't blame them. I didn't blame God. But I want to tell you, it was hard. And I internalized huge pain, which I'm still healing from. 
So I ask myself every time I read this passage, is that the sort of leaving God asks of us? Well, I've come to believe that leaving young children is a mistake. When we bring children into this world, God intends for us to fulfill our responsibility to raise them. I've come to believe that my parents made a mistake. Just as it is a mistake for any parents to be so wrapped up in themselves, in their work, in their recreation, in their public service, or even in their church, not to be present for their children. So I don't think the children that Jesus refers to here are minors, but I do think that even absolutely sincere followers of Jesus who are trying to live as good stewards make mistakes as we try to discern what it means to follow Jesus. We all make some mistakes. And yet God is gracious, and he's in charge of the reward department. He richly rewards. My parents were wonderfully fruitful in those final 12 years of service in Asia and in the following decades of retirement here in Canada. They were, and they would say to you that they were so blessed. And I would say to you, and so was I, as their youngest. Jesus promises compensation 100-fold, along with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. It turns out that the cost of following Jesus is an investment that reaps astonishing returns. Jesus ends this conversation with Peter with these words, but many who are first will be last and the last first. He's saying that in the future when God evaluates our lives, what many expect will be the case will turn out to be the opposite. At that time, those who seem to be most successful may turn out to be the least successful. And those who seem to be the least successful may turn out to be the most successful. Jesus is warning here about defining success in financial terms. He's also warning about defining success in sacrificial terms. The disciples see themselves as excelling and leaving things. We've left everything to follow you, Peter says. But many who are first will be last and the last first, Jesus replies. When we follow Jesus, everything we do is because we love him, because he first loved us. We love him and we trust him. It's not a contest. It's not about getting the highest mark. Jesus is our treasure not stuff or sacrifice or being the best, even the best Christian. Jesus is our treasure. We're following him, following his lead in our decisions and stewardship because we love him, the one who loved us so supremely. And it is infinitely worth it. As we come to the end of our exploration of what Jesus is saying to us in this passage, I just want to refer us again to those three repetitions of Jesus looked. Verse 21, 23, and 27. My favorite one is verse 21. Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler, and loved him. Whoever you are, whatever is going on in your life these days, 
whatever is going on in your mind right now, imagine that Jesus is looking at you and loving you. You may not love and trust him yet, but he wants you to be aware that he knows all about you. He knows you and he is looking at you and loving you and inviting you to follow him. Or you may love and trust Jesus as I do, and we do, so, we do it so imperfectly, and we make so many mistakes, but Jesus wants you and me to be aware that he knows all about us. He is looking at you and loving you. And he wants you to know that the cost of following him is eternally worth it. The truth of all three scenes is this. The cost of following him is eternally worth it. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. To do that, he paid a price none of us can fathom. It cost him. And following him is not cheap. There is a cost. We give up all false gods. We own him as our God. And we recognize that everything we are and have belongs to him. And we let go of the good stuff in the coconut so that we can joyfully follow him wherever he leads. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we've heard your voice this morning. We recognize that by creation and redemption, we belong to you. And everything we have belongs to you. We don't find it easy, but we choose to let go. We choose to hold very lightly onto, yes, even let go of everything else so that we can hold tightly to you, following you wherever you lead. We believe it is infinitely worth it. Amen.